Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This is our 199th show, next week number 200, don't miss it. This week, Nato Thompson. He's the author of Seeing Power, Art and Activism in the 21st Century, which was just published by Melville House. The book considers the volume of information through which artists who wish to be impactful in the world must cut, and offers examples and strategies for ways in which those artists may compete in the cultural marketplace. Thompson is also the chief curator at New York's Creative Time. His projects there have included Jeremy Deller's 2009 It Is What It Is, Paul Ramirez Jonas's 2010 Key to the City, Paul Chan's 2007 Waiting for Godot in New Orleans, and more. On the second segment, we'll rebroadcast a 2012 segment featuring artist Richard Mizrock. We selected it because this month marks the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina's arrival in Louisiana. Mizrock will discuss his after-the-storm book, Destroy This Memory, and why he has been attracted to disasters throughout his career. Destroy This Memory is one of the most interesting and best Katrina projects out there. But first, Nato Thompson, after the break. Don't miss the critically acclaimed exhibition Yoko Ono, One Woman Show, 1960-1971, now in its final weeks, it closes September 7th, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Experience Yoko Ono's art, her concepts, performances, films, and participatory pieces in the first exhibition at MoMA dedicated solely to her work. There's a lot to look forward to this fall at the museum. Picasso's Sculpture opens in two weeks on September 14th, and Greater New York 2015, the renowned series that showcases artists living and working in New York's metropolitan area, opens at MoMA PS1 in October. Find out more at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hammer Museum presents Mark Bradford Scorched Earth, the artist's first solo museum exhibition in Los Angeles. Comprising 12 paintings, including a large-scale work on the Hammer's lobby wall and a sound installation titled Spider-Man, this new body of work refers to formative moments in the artist's life and contemplates the body in crisis. Scorched Earth brings together Bradford's artistic practice, social activism, and history as a native Angelino. On view June 20th to September 27th, 2015. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Nato Thompson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here. You open the book by introducing the idea of cultural capitalism and saying that it's a space in which artists can and do compete with lots of other forms of culture. What is cultural capitalism and why are artists in competition with other things in that space? Sure. So a brief kind of story around that is that Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer in the mid 20th century talked about a thing called the rising culture industry. And they were talking about, you know, Adorno being a big music fan, was very critical of jazz, actually, and was a big fan of Schopenhauer. But they're very critical of this kind of thing called Hollywood, this kind of machine of the big cinemas and, and eventually television and, and radio that were going to make the cultural products as forms of capitalism. And in that, they saw a, a very complicated space where capitalism wasn't just products like shoes or cars, or lamps, like material goods, but also immaterial goods, culture as we come to know it. And that that cultural capitalism, if we call it that, as you know, it's hard to even talk about it in the 21st century, because Adorno and Horkheimer had a very privileged view, because they could literally see it coming as something very distinct 
Whereas today in the 21st century, it's hard to even talk about it as advertising from the early 20th century to today has grown, as we all know, very profoundly. And it's infused itself in everything. So cultural production and this machine of capitalism using culture in many ways has taken a lot of the skill sets of what was early 20th century avant-garde and is now just a part of everyday life. And it's not just television and radio and film, but it's also enmeshed in news, social networking, product placement, cool hunting, Red Bull public space stuff. And a lot of the things, and you know, I, to, be, to put it simply, I would say that we're used to defining art separate from that stuff, as though art somehow has a place outside of those things. And I would just argue that as opposed to trying to de defiantly determine that art is different, we just kind of have to take a, appreciate the complex landscape in which a lot of the skills of what we consider art are deployed across a, a lot of different arenas. You don't address this too much in the book, but is there a time and place near which or around which you see that beginning to happen? I, you know, frankly, I think that the post-World War II, 50s, 60s was the beginning of it. And there are those, you know, the baby boomer generation, the civil rights era, the anti-Vietnam protest movements, 1968, a lot of these kind of heralded civic moments were also boom years for a, a young generation with dispensable income that spent their money not just on hard goods, but also on records, on fashion, on magazine advertisements changed a lot. And so this kind of early era of culture spending, authentic culture, you know, Bob Dylan, you know, this kind of political music, particularly music driven is how we know it, but also, you know, when we think about art too in the kind of 50s era, the pop Warhol kind of era too, the abstract expressionist era. There's a period where this kind of felt very, uh, we think of it in retro, retrospectively as a very authentic time, but it's also the beginning of a time where all this countercultural stuff begins to enter into the mainstream commercial market. And I think that that is a very, you know, somewhere you could put your finger on as an important turning point. So in terms of artists engaging, I guess you'd think about Tom Marioni and drinking beer with friends as the highest form of art or Alan Capra. Well, you know, frankly, I think, you know, to even go back further, I think Warhol is such an important figure. I mean, the funny thing with political art is no one thinks of him as particularly political. His kind of weird bourgeois ambivalence kind of confused everyone, which I found remarkable. But, you know, Warhol was very intuitive about what was happening. And I think his understanding of pop without pointing a finger at it, from the Campbell soup can to the kind of screen prints of Mao to Marilyn Monroe, all the way to his other work, which you could, could consider early relational aesthetics, social aesthetics, the factory itself, right? His, his space where he got people to hang out. He was very aware of this kind of fluid level of, of culture making that kind of moved between high, low, what was on television, what was in the streets. He, he was a master of that. He just wasn't critical of it. That's, that's what drives people nuts. Some, some adore it. But I think that he really had a kind of, he could hit finger on the pulse for that kind of shift. Are there particular strands or styles of artistic production that are, I don't know, particularly useful in the past and present to artists who want to engage in this cultural capitalism space? Well, I, you know, I mean, you mentioned Alan Capra and early on, I mean, if you look at his writings on the happenings, he clearly thought about them as a kind of resistance to co-optation, right? He liked their ephemeral nature, the fact that even if they were in an advertisement, you had to be there, 
right? That you had to be in that space. It was a kind of one-off. And I think he really thought of the happenings in, in many ways as a way to get back to the intimate or the personal and the non-commodifiable and the non-co-optable. And I think that his writings and struggles with that and the art into life movement of his, certainly you can glean a lot from that. There's, there's others too. I mean, frankly, I would say even early on with the Cabaret Voltaire in their kind of move to Dada was a kind of shift away from the sense-making of the world that they figured if the world made sense and World War I had produced such atrocities, they figured the space of nonsense was a productive way of acting as artists. And I think that those kind of, they're, they're all, I mean, they're very famous avant-garde moments, but there's a kind of resistance to being instrumentalized in both instances that are, are useful. But at the, at the same time, I would suggest have their limits as well, because cultural capitalism has become very savvy in terms of finding ways to use that nevertheless. The phrase you use to describe some of that is social aesthetics. The other medium, if you will, that you introduce is tactical media. What is tactical media? Well, so tactical media is a term that was pretty much coined by a group called Critical Art Ensemble in the mid-90s. And the idea what, that they proposed was that, that as opposed to making art, you had to cater your aesthetics towards the situations that you encountered. So they, they suggested you, know, you could enter into, for example, the field of biotechnology, and you would make an aesthetic interruption in the logic of that paradigm to produce something. So, you know, they did a project called Free Range Grain, which was a laboratory where they would test what were considered organic products, and they would test them for genetically modified organisms in a lab. So the art performance intervention, quote unquote, was a, a laboratory, and it was a way to disrupt the logic of biotechnology. That's an example of what they would consider tactical media that you would make your artwork in the language of other discourses, not art. But art was a strategy of moving in those. Tactical media became very popular during the all-globalization movement, where artists were using the tools of art to support larger social protest stuff, and particularly technology-driven and early internet-based forms of communication. So in, in the other part of that is the word tactical, which is culled from a French theorist named Michel de Certeau, who wrote a book called The Practice of Everyday Life, and de Certeau put together kind of two dynamics, which was the tactical and the strategic. And the tactical was kind of a, a method used when you don't own the space that you're operating in. For example, so you're kind of trespassing. Let's say you got to go on someone's property and do something and leave. Well, tactical like is the idea that you could do something very quickly, intervene, and then jump out. And so that's the kind of strategy. And strategy was more when you, you kind of produced an owning of terrain. So... The tactical media was very important, it was very interventionist and, and flighty, and it was also often bound up in a lot of political activism. If I'm reading you right, you think that these forms of address really took off in the United States during the George W. Bush presidency. Why then and how so? They, well, you know, I think it's hard to totally target why then, per se. Certainly, I think one of the big influences was a growing social movement in 1999, kicked off by the protests against the WTO in Seattle. And, you know, just to say that was actually a Clinton era thing. And then it kind of grew through the Bush era. You know, the tactical media also was, it kind of took off, you know, it's, it's really combined also with the rise of the internet as well. I just, I, you know, because I know the Critical Art Ensemble, for example, was hugely influential as a kind of anarchist outgrowth of the continental philosophy movement. There was a book publishing 
there's a publisher named Autona Media, which was kind of the second cousin of a publishing line called Semiotext that I think many are familiar with, or perhaps not. But Semiotext brought a lot of continental philosophy like Foucault, Deleuze, Baudrillard to the shores of the United States. And, Semiot- and Autona Media, I would say, was the more revolutionary, practical uh, lens of that. And that was really picked up by artists. And Critical Art Ensemble was a big part of that. And so there was a kind of push against, I would say, the kind of erudite bourgeois Marxism that was had taken hold of the art world of the early 90s, late 80s, some would say. I don't want to critique it too much because certainly that's a generalization. But there was a kind of con- there was a concern that a lot of like theories around Marxism resulted in very ineffectual political activism and tactical media wanted to serve as an antidote to that. One of the artists and, and projects about which you write at length is Jeremy Deller and his activism, in particular a project called It Is What It Is, and that's the, the project in which he toured the wreckage of a car destroyed in a Baghdad market in 2007 and toured it around the United States along with an Iraq war vet and an Iraqi refugee and artist, and they engaged in conversations with you know anybody who wanted to, to talk with them. So you spend in the book a good bit of time discussing whether Deller's project is or is not art. And I guess, why does that matter? Why can't it just be an activist's project that's worth engaging with on those grounds? Well, you know, it's a good question. I would say, you know, first of all, I would say that a lot of the book has examples of projects I worked on. And that's not necessarily to glorify my role of working on projects, but more you can glean a lot from the practical manifestations of work as you move through it. And I'm hoping the book is not only a kind of theoretical journey, but also a practical one where you can understand these projects as they hit the ground. So with the So let me interrupt really quickly. It is what it is was a creative time project. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you are the chief curator of, of creative time. Sure, yeah. So that and that happened in two thousand nine. And you know, it's funny because you say, why can't that just be activism? But in the book I also mentioned that not only did certain a lot of art people say it wasn't art, but a lot of activism people also said it wasn't activism. And that quandary, which I think is germane to a lot of artists that are trying to do political work in this day and age, they face this really difficult situation, which is they want projects that are open and ended enough to invite speculation. That is to say, they don't want totally didactic, propagandistic work, per se. But simultaneously, they don't want to just produce these kind of poetic artworks that are just there to live in an aloof, remove from the dire urgencies of the world. And so that is to say they kind of want a certain activism within it. And with Jeremy Deller's projects, I think it was emblematic of that, uh, in so much as the car that was blown up in the marketplace toured across small towns in America. And we would have a, there was an Iraqi veteran named Isam Pasha, as well as a U.S. soldier named Jonathan Harvey. And they would just be on hand to answer questions. And the critiques we got, but also it was super interesting. You'd have Iraq war vets come and talk about their stories. But people couldn't figure out what the politics were. It never said it was against the war. It never said it was for the war. It was just there to open up questions. And so the activist community was one of our harshest critics because they said, you know, this is there's a war going on. This is not the time to have an art project that just opens up questions and has discussion. You need to be against this war. And the art community was like, this is not an artwork. It's some sort of therapeutic healing project that goes on the road. And I think that those two critiques 
are emblematic of a line of critiques that often come up upon these kind of artworks that live in a gray area between activism and art. The Deller is a good example of a project that basks in and thrives in its own ambiguity. And I thought some of the most interesting passages of the book were the ones in which you, um, you know, maybe half a dozen of them throughout the course of the book, in which you not struggle with, but address the ways in which artists have embraced ambiguity as a strategy. Did you think about that, worry about that, embrace that before the Deller Project, or was it the Deller Project that kind of got you thinking about ambiguity as a tool? Oh, no, no. I feel like I've been really obsessed with it just because, you know, I my work is often at the intersection of art and politics in general, I would say. And just person on a very personal level, I have conversations with activists and artists and the hybrid, the art activists, a long time. And it's it's an ongoing debate. I mean, you can look at the debates between, you know, Ernst Bloch and, the, you know, the concerns around expressionism, that it was, in fact, expressionism is actually a tool for the fascists, was the critique, that it had nothing to do with the struggles of the everyday man. Old art movements often, you know, were debated around these basic issues. And my interest in the ambiguity is really because it's a cake-and-eat-it-too concern, which is, I think, that there is a lot to be gained by letting people make up their own mind particularly in an age where everybody wants to tell you what to think. Not only advertisements, but I would say at times activist movements too want to tell you what to think. And the space of being able to just take a step back and think about things is really important to me. That said, in defense of the didactic, if I may, (laughs) I would say that on the flip side of that, I find that the arts community at times privileges ambiguity in a way that I find I'm a little skeptical of as well that they prefer the poetic note to, at times, the kind of political urgencies of people that just want to communicate. Leon Golub doesn't get retrospectives in American art music. Yeah, right, right. And this kind of like urgent, like just straightforward narrative that you don't, it's not confusing. It's right there in front of you. And I, for me, you know, I think we just have to have a big heart <laughs> to appreciate the range of these things. And, you know, particularly in America, I would find that the this kind of quest for the ambiguous uh, you know, just to take you know, just to take a note at, at your profession, I find critics unquestionably just assume we all want ambiguity, right? They just assume that that is good art. But you know, for me, this isn't a question of what is good art. I want to contextualize cultural moments in a broader context of where we are at in the world. And I think you know, it's important to question our own aesthetic dispositions or where they're coming from or what are we wanting out of these things. And so I want to defend the didactic as well is what I'm trying to say. Because sometimes I think it's important that, you know, we have a great history, not only art, but just communicators who say what they mean. And it it hurt, hits us in the heart too. It doesn't always have to be poetic to touch us. You know, one of the interesting things about, about ambiguity is in some ways 2015 is the 50th anniversary of ambiguity in art. I mean, for me, the the first and clearest i mean there's never there's never a first anything right but i mean there's no first work of modern art yada 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 but to me the first major artwork that takes ambiguity as a strategy and i I think more certainly the artwork from which artists found permission to embrace ambiguity as a strategy is richter's 1965 uncle rudy which is maybe also an example of how something that starts in the most traditional of media, oil on canvas, 
and how the strategy gets adapted by artists working in other forms. One of the things you point out in the book is that almost none of the artists who work in the cultural capital space you describe, you know, work in colored mud on, on, on canvas. It's interesting you say that because it's, you know, my, I like that you started with painting because it's just, I would say that the trick that painting has, frankly, <laughs> is painting is, and I go into this in the book too, is that it's not that ambiguity, ambiguity has a profound role to play in the world. It is just an aesthetic form that is very vulnerable to the conditions in which it is displayed. And and it's not that it's not inherently important, but that it's open-endedness can be used against it. So, for example, Richter, God bless the Uncle Rudy work, which is an incredible piece that, you know, just to say, talks about the kind of ambiguity of, of German history in particular relationship to the Nazi party. But it becomes a very different piece as it becomes elevated in price and value and esteem. And I, you know, I think it's really important to... Although it's worth pointing out that it that, that Richter did give it to a Holocaust memorial. It is worth you know, pointing it, out. It never did enter the Oh, memorial. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's in literature. That's important to point out. And I th- but just to say too, but I think that, that, that we, it's important to point out that those, that kind of history is exactly critical to interpreting art, which is to say the context in which we engage that, in, and in particular with ambiguity, because, you know, I think that, you know, this is something that, it's called social capital or cultural capital, but the, the power that comes from institutions or places that we go into is certainly read as a part of the artwork. Meaning to say, if you put an artwork in the Museum of Modern Art, a viewer cannot help but understand that that artwork is also in the Museum of Modern Art. And if you put a artwork on a, on a you know, paint it on the side of a building in Williamsburg versus paint on the side of the building in a rundown part of Detroit, these are very different contexts. And and it's important to say that because because the context is a huge part of understanding of how we read what is happening in a particular moment. And it's important as we read artworks to understand the context, but it's very hard to as well. Just to tie up that that end, the, the Richter is in Lidet's village in the Czech Republic um, outside Prague, the site of a 1942 Nazi atrocity, and today the, the home of a memorial to it. You mentioned Red Bull earlier. <laughs> And in the book, you link Red Bull's encouragement of its customers to make objects out of their used drink cans to art artists and sculptures. So what does Red Bull have to do, Red Bull and that campaign, have to do with art and activism? Well, you know, Red Bull is a very innovative, to use that terrifying term, company who really likes to use lifestyle as a way to advertise. And... One of the things they do is they, you know, have people build sculptures out of their cans. But people inherently understand, of course. I mean, it's almost a, it's it's useful because it's so transparently an advertisement. People participate in the producing of a social experience. That's also an ad for Red Bull. But simultaneously, you know, the logic of that can transfer over to all kinds of participatory and social artworks. To get back to Capro uh, that we were talking about earlier. That is to say that there are moments, for example, the, the, you know, the, the often the huge example of relational aesthetics is the Rickert Chervanesia pad thai artwork where he, he cooks pad thai in a gallery and then people are encouraged to participate and eat the pad thai and talk to each other. And it is that social moment that is the artwork. Well, 
the trick of all that is that the skeptical viewer, and you know, just to be sympathetic, we are all somewhat skeptical viewers, also see that as a way of inherently building the social capital of the artist himself, right? That we are participating in the production of the growing value of Rickert Terevenesia, right? Just to say. So the artwork becomes an ad for the artist. It's not just completely without that. Is that piece is a total updating of Tom Marioni's 1969 piece. Ex- exactly. I mean, Marioni would absolutely, I mean, it's not, it's less than an updating. It's a, it's a, it's a duplication thereof. And that's absolutely how it existed in Marioni's San Francisco of the late 60s. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, the trick, I don't want to be super cynical, but that cynicism, I would just argue is a part of everyday life today, which is. We're all kind of skeptical of who's getting what out of anything. And so, I, you know, and I would say that in Marioni's period, we weren't just generationally as skeptical as we are today, just, just by pure inundation of advertising culture. But, you know, there, and certainly I think Rick Ritchervenich, who's a phenomenal artist, and I think very generous and open in spirit and means it in a wholehearted way. He's not a manipulative guy. It doesn't matter. People see these kind of social moments and relational aesthetics moments as as just kind of a way of producing a kind of yet again commercial class kind of thing. So as much as Red Bull and the building with their cans seems at a remote distance from Rickert Turvenesia's pad thai, there's a certain kind of advertising logic that a lot of people read into both projects that is really difficult to reconcile with any kind of culture making. And I I can't answer it completely, but I think it's important to point out just an inherent skepticism and awareness of these forces as people look at art and social art in particular. An unusually high number of the artists you reference in the book are are not, you know, individual people acting on their own. They engage with the art world as collectives. That certainly fits in the context of your book, but I wonder if you've thought through any ideas on why so many of the actors in the art as activism space are collectives? Well, I think there's a few things around the collective. I mean, I can't argue for all because I think everyone has their own particular reasons for doing this. But one, one obvious one is that there's a questioning of authorship. You know, authorship is an important part of art. <laughs> and um, the collective is a way of decentering that is to say there is more than one author in a microcosm, three people can also imply a certain kind of worldview that we all collectively produce culture, that culture isn't produced by individuals. Another part of that is just that I think collectives also are a way of divvying up labor, which is to say just groups of people allow people to manage different parts of their life at the same time as making artwork. So there's a lot of different reasons for that. And also I think, you know, often the history of collectives has a kind of political history and, and romantic and real at the same time, I mean, the sad part of collectives is that they often don't last that long, just like rock bands. The drummer syndrome. I don't know, you know, it's it, there really needs to be an award ceremony for collective that's last over 10 years. Yeah. Without changing members uh, with, you know, with the original line. Exactly. I mean, you look at group material, Grand Fury, you know, history of avant-garde, Cabaret Voltaire, Situationists, or Cobra, you name it. Most people got excommunicated, kicked out really early on. So... It's just hard. That's a hard thing to do is to a lot of battling egos. And often I would also say one of the one this is not your question, but it's fun to talk about, is only that typically the thing that kills collectives is success. Yes. Not Yoko, but yeah. That they, yeah, that they just that someone, you know, that all of a sudden some money and finances enter the equation and that kind of collective spirit gets tested a little harder than it wants to. I know that that's I mean, I remember the group Force Field from Providence, Rhode Island. 
I was like one of the Jeffrey Deitch's kind of pet projects that got featured in the Winter Biennial. And they, you know, they were just young kind of artists from Providence that were just doing stuff out of their warehouse. And as soon as they got some success, I think it kind of tore them apart. But this not, it's not unique anyways. But, but I would say that the collective spirit is certainly endemic to a kind of political art activism. It's certainly within the history of it. So to turn away from collectives for a moment, sort of, you write a bit about Shepard Ferry, the graphic, graphic designer, and you address him or approach him as a figure of overlapping conflict, if you will. What are the conflicts you see within what he does and how do they overlap with many of the things that interest you? Well, Shepard Ferry is a, you know, it's so funny, is, I don't mean, <laughs> I'm only laughing because I just think in some ways in the book, you got to go after the things that a lot of people think are too silly to talk about. But it, in some ways, I think they, the things that are too silly to talk about become great lenses to understand our predicament. So here we have Shepard Ferry, who is a street artist and was got, very known in the early, gosh, I would say mid-90s with his sticker campaign, Andre the Giant Has a Posse. And he was one of these artists, basically, who became very known for his prevalence in every urban center in the world, where he just mailed his stickers and posters out, and then they would put them up. And so suddenly, this artist, you know, if you were in San Francisco in the Mission District or in Echo Park in L.A., or if you're in Wicker Park in Chicago or over in uh, Williamsburg in Brooklyn, you would see his stickers in the bars and stuff. And he became... This kind of it was almost like an elaborate advertising campaign that made no sense. But you know that was back in the day because now, of course, we know exactly who he is, and he has produced these iconic, often culling from Russian constructivist kind of design strategies, these big, you know, famous billboards and posters, and and it's all using these kind of radical aesthetics. And he's culling from you know the Zapatistas to Emma Goldman to Rodchenko, all these kind of using the visual culture of radical culture in a kind of street art way to critique the world. But that said, he's also the darling of a lot of like urban fashion stores and urban outfitters and a lot of these things that many people are indic consider indicative of a kind of co-opting of counterculture. And so he's become the kind of poster boy for this very strange relationship where the against capitalism is sold by capitalism. And, you know, we all know that he did the Obama It Can Change poster that was very successful. But if you talk to any street artist, of course, not any, but most, they will be very hostile about Shepard Ferry. And it, he, he elicits such strong antipathy in people. And quite frankly, I don't think Banksy is all that far removed from it either. I just see in his dismal land. But I think at the end of the day... Uh, the struggles of Banksy aren't, and Shepard Ferry aren't all that removed from ones we understand very intimately to ourselves, which is the need, to, the desire to produce social commentary while still making a living. And I think that that wrestling match is very difficult. And I don't want, and I really try to underscore how difficult that is. And then clearly, not everyone's a Shepard Ferry, and he's doing just fine. But, you know, it, it's still nevertheless that struggle is very much um, across the board. No, he's, in fact, he's very good at getting arrested when it seems like a little burst of PR might be useful. Exactly. But, you know, the same thing, too, <laughs> I would say that I think if you talk to him, he'd be like, I'm doing it, you know, because I remember, I mean, just in my, I feel like I grew up through all this. And so much as like, for example, the band Rage Against the Machine, right? They took on a corporate label 
And their argument was, hey, how are, you gonna, how are we going to reach the mass audiences without this, right? And you see that logic play out all the time. You see, for example, someone like Bono from U2 who signs on with Gap with their red campaign, and they're going to go fight HIV AIDS in Africa. But of course, an outsider goes, but don't they use sweat shop labor in Bangladesh? How do I square the knot on this? You know, how do I figure this out? What are you doing? And I think that there is a kind of puzzle, a befuddlement around these figures that certainly gain a lot of acclaim and fame while espousing a radical rhetoric, but making the kind of compromises that people find somewhat painful. Finally, your book is almost entirely built around New York artists and New York-based actions. Creative Time is a New York organization, of course. Is the thing about which you're writing, do you think, confined mostly to one metropolitan area, you know, 7% of America that is Metro New York, or do you think it's a broader point of engagement and, and discourse than that? Clearly, it's somewhat a rhetorical question, but I enjoy it. You know, it's like, I would say, you know, like I said, a lot of these examples come directly from my experience of working with artists. And so, you know, it's the artists that I have worked with. And it's not just New York. I mean, Tanya Bruguera is a Cuban artist, but she does live in New York. Jeremy Deller is London. But certainly, I would say, I, I, get, I get your point, too, that there's a lot of art that comes out of the New York scene. And that's where I work, based. And I try to think through these moments. And I would say, I do think it has a lot to say to a lot of parts of the world, because there's a lot of things that I find in the art world that we are still not going addressed. They're almost obvious, but it's funny that they don't go addressed. For example, no curator ever says, hey, I did this art show, and this is how I did it. I had to put these people in because they're famous, and no one would pay attention to it unless I had famous people in the show. No one talks about that, right? Or no one says, like, hey, because a, you know, a lot of the way curators work is they put some famous people in, and then they have their secret project that they tuck under that. Right. Or the other people, there's the curator who's basically like the stock investor curator who's like, I just put these people in because their stocks are rising. I really have no interest in any of it. I'm just kind of looking at trends. They're on a list for Venice this summer. Therefore, they're in my show. Yeah, exactly. Like I just kind of follow the trends where they're at and then I just kind of go with the flow. I think it's really helpful to be very self-aware of the way you're navigating power and not in a condemning way, but in a way that's at least transparent because it is, in some ways, I would argue, a form. It is a form that we shape. And yes, there's paint as a form. and There's video as a form. But there's also power as a form. And it's very evident in the art world. You know, we get that. But it shouldn't have to be folks like you, Tyler, that have to reveal that. I think it should be much more on the surface. And that also applies, I think, in terms of the institutions we work. Creative Time, when I work at Creative Time, I try very hard to be very transparent that it is a cultural organization in New York City with a board and it's navigating these complex relationships and try to be clear about the position of power we operate in within a complex social arena. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. And simultaneously, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of focus on things like Occupy Wall Street, which had tons of artists in it, very artist-driven movement, I would say. And Occupy Wall Street, you know, sure, it happened in New York City, but it had implications around the world and still does. And it's in a conversation with movements like the Arab Spring, with movements that are still going on in Spain and in Greece against the austerity measures. And it's a very global community out there that is talking to each other and trying to speak to the world while through culturally, but also trying to understand how to navigate power. So I think there's a lot to be said uh, to the activist, activist community writ large. Nato Thompson, thanks so much for talking with me. Tyler you. Green, good to be on your show, man. 
The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents a major exhibition of six dynamic and colorful installations on a monumental scale by preeminent British sculptor Phyllida Barlow. Featuring large-scale works created specifically for the Nasher Galleries, the works playfully tower over visitors, creating multiple compelling environments. See the London-based artist's exhibition, Phyllida Barlow Trist, from May 30th through August 30th. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. Plaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston presents Sound Speed Marker by Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler. In this critically acclaimed trilogy of video installations and related photographs, Texas and its associated cinematic imagery serve as platforms for reflections on filmmaking itself. Also at Blaffer through September 5th, a collaboration by Henning Bowl and Sergi Cherupnin combines sculptures, drawings, and sound into a multidimensional storytelling platform. More at blafferartmuseum.org. One of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth's most significant holdings is its comprehensive collection of works by Robert Motherwell, one of the figureheads of abstract expressionism, the most important movement in the history of American art. A selection from this collection is on view now, featuring work from Motherwell's open Drunk with Turpentine, Elegies, and Collage series. For The Modern's exhibition schedule, visit themodern.org. Welcome back. Next up, a segment from a conversation I had with Richard Mizrock in 2012. A few years before we taped this conversation, Mizrock had published a book of 69 photographs of New Orleans after Katrina. It was titled, Destroy This Memory. This clip begins with Mizrock telling us how he came to go to New Orleans after Katrina. With Katrina, that was another thing where, just like everybody else, I was following this, this national tragedy, this epic tragedy, and, and wasn't planning to photograph it at all. But I had been to Louisiana before with you know, both the, um, the Cancer Alley work, and then very early in my career in the 70s, I actually photographed the bayous at night, um, the vegetation at night there. So it was something I was, you know, watching also on a personal level as well as, as the national tragedy. And then I saw a photograph, uh, a journalist a photograph in one of the newspapers of, I think, this ship off the, the Mississippi um, Gulf Coast, like a gambling casino that was half underwater. And I just felt like, God, that image just felt like something. It just was calling to me. And so in the last second, I was in the desert photographing, and my wife was with me. And I said, you know, do you mind if we stop this trip here and just drive to New Orleans and start working? <laughs> and she willingly did that. We drove for three days straight, you know, across the country in my Volkswagen van. As I was driving across, I, I called the New York Times Sunday Magazine. It, by the way, it was a month after the, the, the event itself. October 2005, I think. Yeah. And I, you know, I called the New York Times Sunday Magazine. I said, look, you know, I, I, I've got to get there. You know, it's, it's really compelling. Can you can I get a press pass? Can, you know, and they laughed at me and said, you know, this is old news. You know, it's already a month old. It's already been photographed and documented, everything. I, I said, well, well, you know, and, and, and they said, and, and for that reason, we have, you know, you can have the press pass. They had one press pass for the area. And nobody wanted it at that point. And so they provided me with that, which gave me access to areas that otherwise I, I would not have been able to photograph. And, and I called my student assistant at the time, Frank, and I said, I don't know where we're going to stay. I don't know where, you know, what's available with this food or whatever. Can you check? And he looked around, the, you know, for a 180-mile stretch around New Orleans, there was only there was no place to stay. Any places that were available were left for, like, rescue workers and, you know, things like that, emergency workers, things like that. 
And so he eventually found that at Oxnard Hospital, the only hospital that was not shut down, that they had some rooms that I could maybe use for two or three days. And so I ended up going there because I was with the New York Times. They let me stay there for a couple of days. And then I was they ended up letting me stay for much longer periods. That's what I use as my base because there basically was no place to stay. And my father would ship me um, you know, bottles of water to the hospital because there was no no place to get drinking water. And I lived on twigs and beetles, as my wife likes to say, you know, basically uh, nuts and things like that because there's, you know, no restaurants. Anyway, so, so I made I photographed there and I made about a thousand eight by ten photographs as I normally do with a big camera. And I love those photographs. But I also had a pocket camera with me um, where I made and which I normally don't do. It's a digital pocket camera, four megapixel elf, I think is what it's called, a Sony elf. And I made about two thousand reconnaissance pictures, basically photographs of places I want to go back to, you know, check out or down street signs so I could figure out where I was or you know, I wasn't thinking of them as as serious pictures, just just as made, or you know, uh, the the electricity was out. So at night, and you have to remember, some places I were, was going, there was a, no people there. I saw three national guards, and then at one point, and that's all I saw for about two weeks' time, in, in certain par- areas of New Orleans. And so I was driving through this, you know, Grey B movie, apocalyptic movie kind of scenario, and you know, electricity was gone. So to go inside buildings at night, I would. I didn't have a flashlight or anything with me. I ended up using the little strobe, the little flash on my elf camera to light up the room so I could see what I was doing. And as I was going through each room and flashing the, you know, the light so I could see, interesting pictures started to arise. And so I, you know, I just did all that work and I decided after I, I came back, I had a thousand eight by ten negatives, a couple thousand of these small digital pictures. But I again felt like now nah, I don't really want to show it at this time. Too much had been done on it. Robert Paladori, for one, did a great body of work there, and you know, it was really well covered. And I thought, well, you know, I just, I, I, I kind of saw that work and my Oakland Fire work like Civil War photographers. Uh, some of my favorite photographs are what were done, you know, the big large format cameras of the Civil War. And I realized, you know, I thought about it, and I realized that photographs change time, change meaning over time that what what they mean at the time taken, you know, 20, 30 years later can be very different. And I thought, you know, Civil War photographs were like that. I'm sure when people lost their, their husbands and sons and families and homes, those early photographs must have been very painful. And yet now, you know, century plus later, those those photographs become history for us. They change meaning from journalism and documentation to history. And they're really important for us the way we know. So I felt I felt with both Katrina and Oakland that the pictures might serve on that level. So the thousand photographs I made with the 8x10, I've not shown any of those. I've put those away. I'm, and they have begun to print them large. I did make two large prints and, and they were sold and the money went to building homes for Brad Pitt's Make It Right Foundation. So we, we actually sold a few for a lot of money that all the money proceeds went to build a home there. This is a way of giving back there, and those are the only two photographs. They're in private hands that, that I've yet printed or released out there. And then on the five-year anniversary, as that was approaching, I saw that Spike Lee was doing a second film on Katrina, and it triggered my interest. I looked at the, my digital pictures, and I saw a subset of pictures out of the 2,000. There was probably 100 that were just people's words um, spray-painted on their homes, cars, trees. The residents and rescue workers sent messages, almost like crude, you know, crude, primeval uh, text messaging, have faith, 
Michael, where are you? Um, a phone number, really simple, basic messages sent out to the world and as if anybody was there to see them. And so there was a sub-series of pictures, and I looked at it, and I realized, God, this is like an epic poem written by the people in New Orleans. And I thought that would be a perfect book and, and concept for the body of work. And so I, I just, in the book, included these people's words, which were one picture after the other of people's comments and pleas, and it goes through a whole range of emotions from, and, and, and some of it's even very funny. There's, there's this sort of gallows humor, and it's really, it actually shows the resilience of people that they're willing to laugh in the, in the face of this terrible tragedy. And there's no other word in the book, there's no other words. There's no title, there's no page numbers, there's no introduction. It's just 69 pages, 69 pictures. Yes, and, and, and the words in the photographs tell the full story. The Robert Polidori project you mentioned is titled After the Flood, and it was published as an 11-pound book in 2006. It, it's really quite remarkable. Have you, you've always been interested in, in disaster, whether it's you know the, what, the petrochemical core of Louisiana, if you will, or the East Bay Fire, or maybe even going back to, to fires and other degradation of the American desert. Do you remember when disaster began to interest you or, or why it, it began to interest you? Uh, that's a really good question. I, well, one, I, I was subjected to two fires early in my career. The first time uh, the building next to my studio burned down at a self-induced arson, I think, and, and I lost almost everything in my studio, mostly from water damage, smoke and water damage from uh, water from the, the fire hoses. Uh, my, my studio didn't burn down, but all my art on the walls, all my library, everything that was subjected to, you know, flooded, uh, flooding and water. And so I was obviously aware of, you know, sort of a personal catastrophe on that level. I was there at the time when the fire started, so I was actually able to save my negatives. So that was good. That goes out. And then <laughs> three years later, I left my negatives at the lab uh, that was printing them, and the lab burned down, and my negatives burned down with that. So about 3,000 8 by 10 negatives and a number of smaller negatives were, were burned in that fire, and, and that was brutal. And then soon, the year after that, after that latter event, basically in February of 1983, I photographed my first desert fire, and that triggered a whole series of, of, of you know, as part of my desert cantos, I photographed a series called The Fires, and these are man-made fires in the desert uh, over a year period. There were fires that were started by an engineer for the fire department. He was eventually caught and sent to jail. They sent over 200 fires over a two-year period. And then during that same time, I photographed a man-made flood in the deserts in, in California. So the Salton Such sea as flood. that Salton Sea, right? Yeah, the Salton Sea flood. And you know, that series was called The Flood. And then somebody knew, that, a poet on Indian reservation who, who knew about those projects said, you know, you need to come see these mass graves of dead animals by the Indian reservations near military uh, training area. And so I photographed that, and that was a series called The Pit, and so on. So periodic, not all my work. And I don't really, again, chase, chase disasters. I hate to be thought of as a disaster. For, but, but I have been interested in this sort of notion of the post-apocalyptic, that, that maybe the, this notion of the post-apocalypse is not something that happens all at once, but is maybe a series of signs and, or things that happen. And I do think that, you know, if you look carefully around our, our environment and our landscape, you can see all these different problems that we have, all these kind of warning signs of, of the way we are, you know, the problems with our stewardship of the land. 
That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.